0: Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Your transmissions are mooning, waiting to be found
1: and I'm building rockets, i them to the moon By the way, This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 649. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What have we got in today's show? We have Melanie Reese with her Parallel Lines Meet. That's an original Starship silver. Then we have Amy H Sturgis with looking back at Genre History. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And as talking about Amy as well, I got my Christmas card from him. <laughs> yes, Amy, thank you so much. Stickers as well. <laughs> Mandalorian stickers which are in me hut there as well, me little compost, the propagator hut there now for all things for next year in the garden. So I've got them in me. (laughs) thank you so much. It's just an honour and a pleasure to have known you. Right then, so we will get into the main fiction. And like I say, it is Melanie Reese, and it's an original, The Starship's Over. Well done, Fred, there, sir. Melanie Reese is an Australian speculative fiction author. She has published over 100 stories and poems in markets such as Apex, Nature's Daily Science Fiction, and Cosmos. More information, and there's two little links there to Twitter and Melanie's WordPress site. Now, this story is narrated by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a story addict who watches too much television and enjoys putting her science fiction, encyclopedic, sci-fi geek knowledge to the test in discussions about sci-fi, horror and comics. She's been doing just that on Slice of Sci-Fi since 2005 and is a co-host, producer, host and EIC, and as the Babylon podcast host from 2006 to 2012. Summer is also an avid reader and writer of science fiction and thrillers with a handful of published credits to her name. Next on her agenda is a writing an urban fantasy action-adventure and a monster movie extravaganza. She also introduced narrations for Tales of Terrify, Escape Pod, amongst others and has doing audiobooks in her sights. So the starship rover is very proud to present.
4: Where parallel lines meet, by Melanie Reese. My thin-soled sneakers did little to cushion my heels against the hard steel rail, but for Penny, every step was worth it. She reached out an arm, trying to push me off balance. Come on, you can do better than that. I smiled. Penny wobbled inwards, strawberry-blonde hair swished in front of her bright eyes. "'How do you have such great balance, Arian?' She stretched out her arms and steadied herself. "'You can at least make it to the road-crossing,' I said. It seemed apt that we were walking along parallel lines that, in theory, should never meet. Yet one fateful chance, however dire, had brought us together along these same tracks a year ago. I focused in front of me, determined to win. The road seemed close, but I knew it was further than it looked. The smashed boom gates bobbed in the breeze. Soot covered the road crossing the railway. A faint reminder of the day they arrived. I didn't really want to make it that far and see the charred cars littering the road like carcasses. Even here, away from the carnage, everything looked drab, except for a tangled mass of blackberry weeds scaling the embankment. Come summer, we would be thankful for them. The robust conifers shed a mantle of brown needles alongside the track as if they too had given up. Despite all that, there was something soothing about the tracks. If it weren't for the hint of smoke on the air and the gun by my side... I could almost pretend it was a romantic winter's day with fog creeping over the railway line. I could almost pretend the chill was just cold and not fear rising from the pit of my stomach. At least there was one thing I didn't need to pretend. My feelings for her. Those focused eyes, clenched fists, and her tentative steps were captivating. There was only one sure way I was going to win. Cheat. New rules. First to fall gets the wish. What? She turned, mouth agape. I stepped towards her, on the rocky ballast between the lines. How is that fair, Aryan? This game could go on forever. I walked up to the steel track where she still stood, with hands planted on her hips. I grabbed her around the waist. And I'm not sure how much further we should go. I couldn't help but lower my voice. Guess it doesn't matter anyway. We were going to wish for the same thing. Were we? My cheeks ached as I tried to suppress a smile. I bit down on my lower lip. Of course. Everyone is wishing for those creatures to be a dream. I felt her body tense as I held her. Everyone is wishing that, but it's not going to come true. I really, really want this wish to come true. And the last thing I want is for this to be a dream and to have never met you. I clasped her hands. This is the best dream I've ever had. I want it to last forever. I pulled the ring out of my pocket. I'd taken days to clean off the dust, ash, and whatever else my brain refused to believe was caked on its surface. But now, even in the dim light, it shone as bright as her eyes. Penny didn't respond. She just slipped the ring on her finger and kissed me. Penny crawled under the barricade, her beautiful derriere wiggling as her rucksack caught on the corrugated iron's rusted edge. I don't know why they make the gap so low. It's not as if the creatures are going to fit under here. She reached behind her and tried to unhook her bag. I'm almost through, she said. No hurry, Mrs. Arion. I never got tired of that sight, but... I decided to be a gentleman and free her of the iron. She scrambled out to the other side and nodded to the guard on duty. I pushed my empty rucksack through first, then squirmed along the dirt to join Penny. "'We've scavenged all around town,' the guard said, staring into the denuded tree line. "'I wouldn't go into town, but perhaps try houses further along the tracks.' We've got it covered. Penny adjusted her rucksack further onto her shoulders. The guard pointed at the tunnel entrance. And if you see any scrap metal spikes we can fashion for defense, let us know. It's looking more and more like a kid arse each day. Aryan, who cares as long as it shits on those creatures? Penny almost cracked a smile, but... Her lips seemed to think better of the idea and grimaced. Now if you finish playing art critic, let's go. She drew her weapon again and walked down the middle of the track. Stay safe, said the guard, especially today. He smiled. I nodded and rushed off to catch up with Penny. Penny. We strode in silence as the sun reached its zenith and attempted to warm the chilly landscape. About a kilometer from the makeshift bunker, Penny stepped up onto one of the tracks. She turned to me and almost cracked a smile. We do it properly this time, she said. Whoever stays on longest gets an anniversary wish. Even though we had a schedule for our supply run, I obliged and hopped up onto the line. My heels were like rocks grinding against the track through my paper-thin soles. It was a long time since I scavenged for shoes and clothes, but not today. Penny's own boots were scuffed so much her big toe was starting to poke through, and they were so covered in soot the brown leather was barely visible. What would you wish for on the very slim chance you beat me? I joked, trying to break the silence. Do you really need to ask? Her eyes grew dark and as grave as her voice. What a dumb question, Arian. I dug my fingers into my palm. Penny had always been a dreamer. The only thing she'd wish for is her sister back for the last couple of years never to have happened. My stomach seized. That meant meeting me as well. Penny must have seen my consternation, for she rephrased it, for them never to have appeared. Isn't that wishful thinking? Isn't that what wishes are for? She clenched her gun and scanned the embankment. What will you wish for instead? At the moment, all I wished was for Penny to be happy, but stating that aloud would possibly remind her that she wasn't. Twigs snapped. I stepped off the line and raced in front of her with my gun raised. Get behind me, I whispered. I think we're fine. Penny lowered her gun. It'd be snapping more than just twigs if it were one of them. She pointed at a scraggy cat skulking underneath the blackberry brambles. For a microsecond I felt silly for overreacting. Then the practical side of me took hold. I lined the gun up to my eye and tried to keep my aim as it hobbled along, scratching and sniffing the dirt. "'Please don't,' Penny grasped my wrist." "'If the others back at the barricade knew I'd let a meal go, "'they'd relegate us from scavenging to latrine duties. "'But this was our day, and they'd never know.' "'I lowered my gun. "'Despite this, Penny's shoulders drooped "'as if her whole body had given up the fight against gravity. "'Go on,' I began. "'I fell first. It's your wish.' The cat raced off at the sound of my voice. Let's not break our tradition. You fell first. Make a wish. She stared at the point where the cat had disappeared over the mound. Besides, what's the point? she muttered. I wrapped my arms around her waist from behind and kissed her neck. I wish for a romantic anniversary dinner that we don't have to kill or scrape off the road. She turned to face me, still standing on the tracks. Her eyes smiled for a second before the crack of a tree breaking in the distance shattered the moment. I grabbed Penny's hand and pulled her along the tracks toward the intersection. I let go of her hand as we approached the old boom gates. Wait there. I mouthed the words and held up my palm. I crept forward, towards the road and peered down the street towards town. Amid the charred buildings and deserted vehicles, the smoke didn't appear so bad today, but at least one of the snapping, scuttling beasts lurked outside the old supermarket. "'There's at least one at the store,' I said, a lump catching in my throat." I held up three fingers in Penny's direction, still gazing down the street. Two fingers. The beast turned away from us. One finger. She raced across the tracks before I'd even scrambled to my feet. With a few long strides, I joined her on the other side, breathless but heart still racing. The conifers offered a false sense of protection. Come on! I whispered. Our pace quickened; The tang of smoke in the air and crackling embers died down as we dashed away from the township. There, Penny pointed off into the distance. Through the charred foliage, a section of galvanized roof shone in the dappled sunlight. It's possible the others missed it, Penny's voice was weary rather than optimistic. We should go a little further. Faint metal tapping drifted towards us. I pressed my ear against the tracks. The clicking of claws against the metal resonated louder. The sounds turned my mouth to dust. Penny must have seen my facial expression. Come on! "'She reached for my hand as I rose to my feet "'and dragged me towards the dwelling. "'Penny raised her weapon as she pushed on the door. "'When it didn't budge, she turned and smiled. "'That's a good sign. "'She pulled my knife from my rucksack "'and pried it under the cheap lock. "'It snapped off. "'I jabbed the door with a firm kick "'and it swung inwards to a kitchen.' Penny closed the door behind us and proceeded to scour the cupboards for food. Was her blasé attitude just confidence? I pushed a thought from my mind and braced the door with a plastic chair that looked as if it would snap if even I sat on it. Help me look, said Penny in an almost joyful tone. I held up my finger and moved to the other end of the cabinetry. Amid a film of dust surrounding plates and glasses that were once old Vegemite jars, sat a wicker basket containing a collection of paper party hats and candles shaped in numbers ranging from one to five. Alongside me, Penny pulled out containers of unloved legumes and assorted pickles. For a second, I saw her pulling a pink ice cream cake from the freezer and arranging birthday candles as a young girl squealed gleefully, tugging Penny's flowing skirt. "'This is the most unorganized kitchen I've seen,' said Penny, snapping me back to reality. "'Why don't you find somewhere to rest, and I'll finish searching.' She hurled a few things into her rucksack. Through an archway, I found the lounge room, Sun drove in the northern windows, illuminating shagpile carpet and floral sofas. I peered through the window. Something moved through the denuded conifers. I whipped the heavy curtains shut and copped a faceful of stale musky odor. The room fell into darkness. From my bag I pulled out a glass and set it on a wooden coffee table. In it, I placed candle number one. It shone bright for the happiest year of my life. Penny chuckled as she entered. I held my finger to my lips and pointed to the window. She nodded, but her smile remained as she placed a plate and two glasses alongside them on the coffee table. Baked beans and jar pickles piled high on the plate. My stomach grumbled. "'Shouldn't we save this for the others?' I whispered. "'I found plenty. "'Besides, what's more romantic than a candlelit dinner for two? "'She produced a bottle of whiskey from behind her back. "'Care for a glass?' "'She unscrewed the lid and poured. "'I hadn't inhaled that pungent aroma in years.' "'I cuddled up behind Penny and kissed her neck. Her scent drowned out the room's muskiness, and even the potent whiskey, and her warmth burned away the winter chill. For a moment, the chaos of the world outside drifted away. The smell of mold wafted into the room. I untangled myself from Penny to see dust raining down from a gap in the ceiling's ornate cornicing. Penny didn't seem phased; She just turned and kissed me. Piercing claws snapped like castanets and scraped against the galvanized sheeting. My heart pounded so hard I thought it could protrude through my ribcage at any second. I leaned over Penny and blew out the candles. "'Grab my knife,' I said in her ear. Penny ignored me. Instead, she pressed slender lips against me and pushed me back onto the carpet without a second glance at the ceiling. I pointed at the ominous sprinkling of dust. They might... Penny held a finger against my lips. I don't care, she whispered. My heart mellowed as she wrapped fingers around my hair. You should make the wishes every year, she whispered, wrapping her arms around me. All your wishes have come true. We stood by the road crossing, feet perched precariously on the tracks. Penny crept forward and scanned the street. What are you doing? I asked in a hushed voice. We're still competing, she said. Just jump off the tracks and we'll run across. I see what you're doing, Penny smirked. It wasn't like her old smiles. Her eyes brightened, but in an adrenaline-filled way, a junkie's pupils might dilate. You want me to jump off so you can get our anniversary wish. Stop being so... Before I could finish, she tiptoed across the metal to the other side like a ballerina fluttering across the stage. I followed her lead. Unsure why I didn't just step off and run across the road. You can't afford to be so reckless now. Penny clasped her stomach in both hands. The tiny bump, barely visible under her thick jacket, was as beautiful as she was. Why? she asked. What for? I stopped still on the tracks. We could be celebrating our child's birthdays with numbered candles on a cake we bake ourselves from our own homegrown wheat. We can watch our child walk along the same tracks trying to make you fall off. And you'll deliberately step off so she wins. We can still live. You can't keep running away from that. As if to prove me wrong, Penny hastened along the track more determined than ever. If we're going to find any supplies, we need to hurry. She powered on like a marathon walker. I kept going, focusing on the back of her hair, which now grew past her shoulder blades. One day, she kept saying, she'd find the time to get it cut. Just like one day I kept saying I'd find the time to replace my sneakers. Wire from the sole rubbed against raw blisters. These days, physical pain seemed like a side issue. It was another pain that consumed Penny. Tendrils of mist snaked around the trees. The air was fresh. Whatever armed forces remained, they no longer bothered bombing the infestations. There were even ravens warbling in the canopy. The hunger growling inside wanted to shoot them, but not on our anniversary. "'I'm thinking of a wish for when I win,' said Penny. "'Do you know what the traditional gift is for—' "'She must have felt it just as I did. "'The wire in my soles vibrated through my feet. "'I felt the thudding through the tracks. "'I spun to find a dozen creatures "'cluttering along the track back towards the intersection. "'As I turned back, ready to run— two chunky shapes caught my eye at Penny's side. She froze, perhaps knowing there was no way we could outrun them. I didn't hesitate. My wish, I said, keep running. I stepped off the line and ran towards the trees on Penny's side. I pointed my gun. Penny shot first, the bullet ricocheting off the creature's thick exoskeleton— I aimed for the soft underbelly as one reared up. Its claws snapped high above my head. Ooze erupted from its abdomen, but it wasn't enough to deter the creature. Another bullet rang out beside me, hitting the second creature. I wish for you to keep going. My wishes always come true. Ooze soaked my clothes as the creature neared. I emptied my clip unsure whether I reached any of my marks. I heard Penny's exasperated screams before I felt the piercing mouth slice through my torso. The snapping of claws died down as I caught one final glimpse of her strawberry hair disappearing into the distance.
0: And there you
1: go, there you go. Melanie, thank you so much for that. It is fantastic. Man, <laughs> thank you indeed. And Summer, it is always a pleasure. And I will one time get those audio promo to you as well. That, that, that's, there's way too much going on at the moment. But thank you anyways for mentioning that and bring that to our attention. So next up is... It is, it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis
3: Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back at genre history. And as we bring the year to a close, I thought it might be appropriate to note the passing of some of those who have made quite an impact on genre history themselves. Authors, editors, actors, scholars. Just pay a tribute to some of those we've lost now i do this with certain trepidation because number one there's no way i can mention everyone we've lost this year it has been a tragic year and number two even for those i do mention i can't do them justice and still mention multiple people each of these people you know deserves their own special segment so with my preemptive apologies for those I leave out and for the brevity with which I cover those I do mention, I hope that you'll join me just to note and tribute the contributions of some great players in the history of the genre. So I will go in chronological order, to the best of my ability, and begin with Mike Resnick from the 5th of March, 1942, to January 9th, 2020. Resnick was an American science fiction writer and editor. He won five Hugo Awards and a Nebula Award, was nominated, in fact, for 11 Nebula Awards. And he won numerous other awards internationally from places all over the globe, Croatia and Poland, Spain, and France, and Japan. Resnick wrote more than 70 novels. He published over 25 collections and edited more than 40 anthologies. In fact, there's been not one, but two annotated bibliographies and guides to his work. The first was published by Fiona Kelligan in 2000, and in 2012, Adrian Gormley's edition came out. That was 679 pages for that second edition. Resnick was the guest of honor at the 70th World Science Fiction Convention and dozens and dozens and dozens of other conventions. In fact, he and his wife were involved with science fiction conventions from the 1960s. He was the executive editor of Jim Bain's Universe and the editor and creator of Galaxy's Edge magazine. In 1995, he was awarded the Skylark, that's the Edward E. Smith Memorial Award for Imaginative Fiction, for Lifetime Achievement in Science Fiction, and in 2017, he received Writers and Illustrators of the Future's Lifetime Achievement Award. The next individual I want to mention is Christopher Tolkien, born November 21, 1924, passed on January 16th, 2020. As someone who works in Tolkien studies, I find giving tribute to Christopher Tolkien a rather overwhelming task, so I am going to quote from Andrew Liptax Christopher Tolkien, architect of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth, 1924 to 2020, from tour.com, just the first section of that tribute. Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, who continued his father's publishing legacy, has died, according to the Tolkien Society. He was 95. The third son of the late epic fantasy author, Christopher was the initial audience for his father's initial famous work, The Hobbit. While the elder Tolkien rose to international fame with his Lord of the Rings trilogy, he was also responsible for creating the massive world and backstory in which the novels were set, Following the death of his father in 1973, Christopher Tolkien was placed in charge of his massive literary estate and began to organize his papers. In 1977, he collected and published The Silmarillion, a work that Tolkien had intended to publish, which explored the origins of Middle-earth and set up the conflict that he explored in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, In the years that followed, he continued to produce new volumes of Tolkien's unpublished writings, releasing Unfinished Tales in 1980, the 12 volume History of Middle Earth between 1982 and 1996, and edited and completed a number of longer narratives and translations of epic poems, including The Children of Huron, 2007, The Legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, 2009, The Fall of Arthur, 2013. Beowulf, A Translation and Commentary, 2014, Baron and Luthien, 2017, and The Fall of Gondolin, 2018. In 2017, Tolkien stepped down as the director of the Tolkien Estate and Tolkien Trust, saying at the time that Baron and Luthien would likely be his final book. His death comes at a time when his father's books are more popular than ever, and as Amazon works to create a massive TV series based on the works that he himself helped bring to the public." End quote. Next, I would like to mention two actors whose influence on genre film will be felt for a very very long time. The first, Sir Ian Holm, September 12th, 1931 to June 19th, 2020. English actor. He received the 1967 Tony Award for Best Featured Actor for his performance as Lenny in The Homecoming, and the 1998 Laurence Olivier Award for Best Actor for his role as King Lear. He won the 1981 BAFTA Award for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, and the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actor for his role in Chariots of Fire, and he was also nominated for an Academy Award for that role. Genre fans will note that his footprint on genre film is undeniable, pervasive, including key roles in films such as Alien, Time Bandits, Brazil, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, The Fifth Element, Existence, and From Hell. And to me, Ian Holm, among many other remarkable roles, Will always be a Baggins. He was Frodo Baggins in the remarkable 1981 BBC radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, one of the best Tolkien adaptations out there. And of course, he was Bilbo Baggins in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings and cameos in The Hobbit film series. Not going to lie, that one really hurt, losing Ian Holm a great actor, and another one that really hurt, and hurt around the world, the loss of Chadwick Boseman, November ninth, 1976, to August 28th, 2020, an American actor whose influence and importance is so much bigger than his tragically short life would suggest. After studying directing at Howard University, his first major role came as a series regular on Persons Unknown in 2010. His breakthrough role came as Jackie Robinson in the biographical film 42 in 2013, and he would go on to play other historical figures of great note and inspirational quality. James Brown in Get On Up, 2014, and Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall in Marshall, 2017. But, of course, the role that changed everything, really, was his role as Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe from 2016 to 2019. He was in four uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe films, including, of course, Black Panther, which earned him an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actor in a Motion Picture and a Screen Actors Guild Award for Outstanding Performance by a Cast in a Motion Picture. He was the very first black actor to lead a Marvel film. His final roles came in Spike Lee's Five Bloods in 2020 and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which was released after his death. And... If you were on the internet, at all social media, or any major news sites, you saw the outpouring of grief for his untimely death, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the outpouring of love from his castmates, from those who were influenced by him, from children around the world. It's a really tragic loss, but also what an inspirational and immensely talented actor i will shift now back to authors first terry goodkind who lived from january 11th 1948 to september 17th 2020 american writer known for the epic fantasy series the sword of truth when I say epic, I mean it sold more than 25 million copies around the world, was translated into more than 20 languages, and was adapted to TV, specifically the series called Legend of the Seeker, which ran from 2008 to 2010. He also wrote a contemporary suspense novel called The Law of Nines, which came out in 2009. His representatives on Facebook Posted a short statement that said, It is impossible to put into few words just how amazing of a man, a husband, a writer, a friend, and a human Terry Goodkind truly was. He is already desperately missed. We are forever grateful for him having shared his life's work with all of us, as he was always grateful to be held in our hearts. End quote. Next, I want to remember Rachel Cain who lived from the 27th of April, 1962, to November 1st, 2020. Rachel Kane was the pen name of Roxanne Longstreet Conrad. She was an American science fiction writer, fantasy writer, mystery, suspense, and horror writer. And she also published media tie-in novels as Julie Fortune. Over her career, she published 56 novels, many short stories... A lot of people perhaps know her as well, not only from her work, but from her social media presence, where she both encouraged and mentored and uplifted other authors and also made public the fight that she had with an aggressive form of soft tissue sarcoma. I won't even get into, though I encourage you to look into, her works as Roxanne Longstreet, Roxanne Conrad, Ian Hamill, and Julie Fortune. But I will note that Rachel Kane produced a number of successful and very different series, including the Weather Warden series, the Red Letter Days series, Morganville Vampires, the Athena Force series... Um, also the adult urban fantasy series, the outcast season, and the revivalist series. I could just keep going. The great library series, the Stillhouse Lake series, the honor series, as well as standalone novels and short stories. Sarah Simpson Weiss, who was Kane's longtime assistant and close friend, posted about the author's relentless work pace, as well as her great compassion. And this was quoted with this description by Publishers Weekly. And here is the post by Sarah simpson Wise. Quote, She would pick the writing back up whenever there was a lag in her line, which was rare. She would write in her hotel room until the very last second to make it to a panel or signing. I've watched her ride on planes and in airports. I've watched her churn out four books a year for almost 11 years now. I've watched her donate books to classrooms around the world. I've watched her fund classroom materials, fund other people's bills, and basically swoop in to save the day for anyone who needed it, regardless of if she actually knew that person. I've watched her champion indie bookstores, Debut writers and more. She is absolutely the most hardworking, genuine, and compassionate person I have ever known, and being her assistant and friend for the past decade has made me a better person in every possible way End quote. And now, the last three tributes I would like to give. Unfortunately, all of these are deaths caused by either the coronavirus or by complications from COVID-19. The first, David Prowse, who lived from January 1st, 1935 to November 28th, 2020. He started out as a weightlifter, and he won the British Heavyweight Weightlifting Championship in 1962, and 1963, and 1964. And then he joined the film industry. He Immediately found a place in genre film and television and worked in productions like Casino Royale, A Clockwork Orange, Doctor Who, and Space 1999. He then became a special kind of television hero. The National Road Safety Committee created the Green Cross Code Man, who championed children's safety. And in a long-running series of videos that really left a mark on popular culture, he would protect children, he would watch the streets, and he'd teach children how to safely cross the street themselves. He also helped to train Christopher Reeve for the lead role in Superman in 1978. But he's most beloved, of course, as the man behind the mask of Darth Vader— the man in the suit, the body, the physical presence of Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy. He went on to be at a lot of science fiction conventions and connect with fans. In 2015, he starred in a documentary concerning his Darth Vader role and the occasional controversies surrounding that, including whether or not he (laughs) shared information that he shouldn't have shared, spoilers, uh, for the original trilogy. And that documentary was entitled, I Am Your Father. His physical presence, again, and his athleticism and the power of that frame has as much to do, one might argue, with the reason Darth Vader is so iconic and left such an impression from those original films as the brilliant voice work by James Earl Jones. Next, we have author Ben Bova, November 8, 1932 to November 29, 2020, an American writer, editor, In fact, he was the author of more than 120 works of science fact and science fiction. And before I talk about some of his legacy, I would like to quote from Andrew Liptak's legendary science fiction author, Ben Bova, has passed at the age of 88 from Tor.com. Liptak writes, Born in 1932, Bova brought experience to the science fiction genre that few authors could match. He worked as a technical editor for the U.S.'s Project Vanguard, the first effort on the part of the country to launch a satellite into space in 1958. Bova went on to work as a science writer, for Avco Everett Research Laboratory, which built the heat shields for the Apollo 11 module, putting man on the moon and ensuring that science fiction would continue to increasingly define the future. It was around that time that Bova began writing and publishing science fiction. He published his first novel, The Star Conquerors, in 1959. And followed up with dozens of others in the following years, as well as numerous short stories that appeared in publications such as Amazing Stories, Analog Science Fact and Fiction, Galaxy Magazine, The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, and others. Now, in 1972, Bova became the editor of Analog Science Fact and Fiction after John W. Campbell's death in 1971. He would go on to win six Hugo Awards for Best Professional Editor for his work at Analog. He was also an editorial director of Omni. He was president of both the National Space Society and the Science Fiction Writers of America. In 2000, he was the guest of honor at the 58th World Science Fiction Convention. And in 2008, he won the Robert A. Heinlein Award for his science fiction work. And the last tribute I would like to offer feels a little bit personal for me because this scholar's work has directly impacted my own. I have used uh, the scholar's scholarship... In my own academic writing, and so I want to pay tribute to award-winning American scholar Richard West, who passed on November 29, 2020, at the age of 76. Until his retirement, he was the Serials and Technical Services Librarian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. When he was still a student there, he also started a Tolkien Society there, the University of Wisconsin Tolkien Society. He started that in 1966, and that continued to meet until the pandemic ended face-to-face meetings earlier this year. He was a part of that Tolkien Society the entire time and also contributed to its yearly journal, which was called Orcrest. He published Scholarship and criticism and really important works on Tolkien beginning in 1966 and was still publishing in 2014. In 1976, he won the Mythopaic Award, the Scholarship Award for Inkling Studies, for Tolkien Criticism and Annotated Checklist. And I'd like to particularly mention. A very influential essay of his, The Interlace Structure of the Lord of the Rings, which was published in Tolkien Compass in 1975. It's an early study and one of the most clear understandings and articulations of Tolkien's use of the medieval interlace technique. And that's something that I found very useful in my own work, not just about Tolkien, but about uh, other works, such as Baron de Lamont Fouquet's The Magic Ring. In my Tolkien class and in other classes, when I'm trying to describe the interlace method, I often talk about looking at a medieval tapestry, and if you stand very, very close and you follow a thread, it looks like the thread is jumping all over the place. It bends back on itself, it it branches away from its original route and it goes all around the place and then it seems to come back and then it disappears for a while and then it comes back. If you step back from that, you see that it is forming a larger picture. The picture often tells a story, but if you get very close and you follow the threads, they seem to be scattering all over the place and bending back on themselves. And that's, method of storytelling is very rich. It does create a remarkable depth of narrative, opportunities for use for symbolism, ways that repeated patterns in the story can reveal themes, but also comment on each other. And that method, that form of storytelling, explains in a way why The Lord of the Rings reads like it does. It isn't a straight, linear narrative in the same way, for example, The Hobbit is. If you think about, for example, Frodo going to the house of Tom Bombadil and there dreaming of Gandalf's rescue by Gwahir from Saruman's imprisonment being kept in the Tower of Isengard, that's an example of Tolkien using interlace method. Uh, you're seeing several things going on at the same time. The narrative is sort of bending back on itself. Also the fact that you have a fellowship and the, the members of the fellowship continue to be separated from each other and you follow one story and then you go back and follow another story. And then characters who've been missing for a while show up and the other characters say, what's been going on with you? And then you get the recounting there but here is the very influential and important part of it, a description of interlace from Richard West's essay. Quote, interlace seeks to mirror the perception of the flux of events in the world around us, where everything is happening at once. Its narrative line is digressive and cluttered, dividing our attention among an indefinite number of events, characters, and themes, any one of which may dominate at any given time, and it is often indifferent to cause-and-effect relationships. The paths of the characters cross, diverge, and recross, and the story passes from one to another and then another, but does not follow a single line. Also, the narrator implies that there are innumerable events that he has not had time to tell us about. Moreover, no attempt is made to provide a clear-cut beginning or end of the story. We feel that we have interrupted the chaotic activity of the world at a certain point and followed a selection from it for a time, and that after we leave, it continues on its own random path, end quote. Not only is that a brilliant explanation of interlace, but I think it also shows why that method, even though it is so old of storytelling, feels immediate and feels relevant. It is, in fact, chaotic like our own lives. Being dropped in the middle of a whole lot of stuff going on is very much the human experience. And yet a skilled author can do that and create patterns and create commentary and use symbols and respond to that chaos. At any rate, I wanted to be sure to mention Richard West as well. And this ends my tribute to just some of those lost this year who have made an impact on genre history. I mentioned Mike Resnick, Christopher Tolkien, Sir Ian Holm, Chadwick Boseman, Terry Goodkind, Rachel Kane, David Prowse, Ben Bova, and Richard West. And while I'm at it, I'd just like to acknowledge that far too many of us in the genre community are dealing with personal grief and loss this year. And I just want to say a word of condolence and love to all of you. And with that, I would like to also wish you a safe and bright holiday season, and here's to a much better year next year. I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different. I am already making my plans for the next time we get together to take another look back at genre history. Thank you.
1: There we go, Amy. Thank you. Last, thank you very much indeed. And again, thank you for those stickers. It's just like I'm honestly so much enjoying the Mandalorian. Do you know what I mean? And I didn't realize I've had, and I got them for last Christmas. I got some AirPod Pro head, like little, you know, like uh, earbuds, headphone things, and they do those spatial audio. And now I've never is it spatial audio where it can it just and I've never tried it, right? But I was watching a programme because I was watching a YouTube channel about these new AirPod Max things that are coming out, which are five hundred odd quid for a pair of headphones over the ears. But anyways, they've got that same technique and I went and it was I Justine on YouTube, if anyone's interested. She put them on, she'd never used it, this this kind of bit of a kit, and she was just doing a review of these, the Max ones, and she said it was unreal, the sound, so I thought, well, I'll try that. Do you know what I mean? In honesty, it's... that You're there, especially something like The Mandalorian... You can just hear things at the different angles and, like footprints, you know, like footfalls are, are different. You, you honestly, it's such a, a rich experience. You know what I mean? So if you can try and get, you know, some of them. I mean, don't forget, God, take, pay five hundred quid for a pair of headphones. But if you've got the, you know, the the earpods, the Max, one, well, the Pros ones, the the little ones. I forget what mine are called. They've got it on there and you can set it on your phone so you, you kind of get the spatial audio. It's just tremendous. honestly, it's, it's just works so well. Anyway, that's enough for me, we'll ramble on. Amy, thank you so much. Enjoy the Mandalorian. It is fantastic. Until next week, just let's say. Good night from me.
0: Thank you for listening. I'm marooning, waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon, but the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me, Is my signal getting through, turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. I, say, I might already be on to you and on my way, but you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you, I wanna talk to you.